like to have our text open in front of you, which is in Luke 5, and uh, verses 27 through 32. And uh, in the week, I was reading over these verses again, and just struck really again at the way in which the Lord deals with these various ones throughout this passage, and then particularly Matthew, the tax collector, and sort of ends this section with that amazing verse, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. It is such a a powerful and clear statement about what the gospel really is. I have not come to call the righteous. And you know, when we understand that statement, it is to grasp really the uniqueness of Christianity, true biblical Christianity. It tells us why Jesus came. It tells us why he lived in this broken, sin-sick world. It tells us why he went to the cross and why he rose again and ascended and now intercedes for us. The whole sweep of salvation is brought together in these words that we have before us in verse 32. And friends, really the heart of all true gospel ministry is to call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that we have to be clear with people about sin. That we must make that clear that we have to have a biblical understanding of what sin is. And our condition as we are before God outside of Jesus Christ. We have to declare that God is holy. The perfection of his standard, the standard of the law. How that we are all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. And also we we know from the word of God that the, the spirit's work, part of it is to convict of sin. And the Spirit works and gives those gifts of of true repentance and faith. And so the Spirit works in a person to convict them of their sin, but also to show them the Lord Jesus and how the Lord Jesus can save them and deal with their sin. Repentance and faith, both gifts of grace. And so the gospel, true faith, is not for good people. It is for sinners. And the the church, believers committed together, is not for those who think that they are righteous, deserving, or superior, some sort of, of club for the righteous, as it were. No, as we have said many times, this is a hospital for those who are sick with sin. It's full of sinners. You know, maybe you come along and sometimes you think, oh, well, you know, a church is full of people. They've got it all together and they you know, go about their lives. And, but friends, not here. You know, we're a, we're a bunch of sinners who've been saved only by God's grace. And we live in dependence upon him day by day. And in fact, for true believers, the more that we follow Christ and the more that we love Christ and the more that we deepen in our faith and our understanding and our our grasp of what the Word of God says, the more we understand that, the more we understand our sin and our great need. And a mature fellowship of the Lord's people knows well their own shortcomings, but also keeps looking to the Lord Jesus, keeps looking for that abundant grace. 
And if you look at this passage that we have before us, this whole matter of who is in the kingdom and entering the kingdom is, is brought to us again. It's something that we've seen when we're in Matthew and hopefully we'll return to Matthew soon. But if you remember in the Beatitudes near the beginning, the Lord Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he was making it clear that a, a person cannot enter the kingdom without that recognition, that conviction of sin. And really that was unthinkable to the religious establishment and leaders of the day during the Lord's earthly ministry. And if you to look at the previous chapter in Luke, you know that scene when the Lord Jesus went into his own synagogue in Nazareth. You know, all would have known him. And there he is, and he goes into the synagogue and he speaks about how he is the expected Messiah. How he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. And in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he says, today, today, this scripture is fulfilled. He was there in the midst. He was clear. He was Messiah come to save his people from their sins. And you know, the leaders in the synagogue, the spiritual elite, they hated him for it. There was just a, a, a hatred which is there. They didn't see themselves as poor. They didn't see themselves as broken-hearted. They didn't see themselves as being captives or spiritually blind or oppressed. Oh, no, they were righteous. Oh, they were good people. And they were good enough for God, they thought. They were religious. They had all their works and their efforts and all their man-made laws. And so they're furious with the Lord. So much so that they tried to throw him off a cliff. And just like the rich young ruler elsewhere, and like many today... They're offended to be told that they're sinners. Or, don't tell me that. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I'm not a sinner. They would not accept the assessment of their hearts by the Son of God. They hated the truth. And in response, Jesus is clear. He says, well, I didn't come for people like that. I didn't come for those who, who think they're good enough. I came for sinners. I came to call sinners to myself. You know, there is no salvation, no forgiveness, no deliverance for those who think they are good enough for God themselves. Who think that they can earn their own righteousness and make themselves good enough. And in the scriptures, what you'll find is, particularly if you read the Gospels, Jesus focuses his ministry on the poor and the prisoners and the blind and the oppressed and the outcasts. Why? Because they lived knowing what it was to be despised. They lived knowing what it was to be outcasts and unable to change their condition. You know, they weren't living under illusions and maybe they were quicker to examine their own hearts than the religious elite that was so confident in themselves. You know, some of the hardest mission fields in this world are some of the most prosperous places in the world because people are hardened in their sin they don't see their need and so they quickly begin to mock the Lord and we find that the religious elite they start to call him the friend of tax collectors and sinners and they meant that as a slight against him 
But Jesus is the only hope for sinners. And the Lord Jesus, we read it together, he's just cleansed and forgiven the leper. He's just restored and forgiven uh, a paralyzed man. He'd done more than just heal him externally, but he had dealt with the real problem, and that was the man's sin. And Jesus knew his heart and gave him what he needed, forgiveness. And so to prove that Jesus had the, the power and the authority to forgive sins, which was not visible, he healed him entirely to demonstrate his power. And that was the visible sign, because only God could do both of those things. And so Jesus does this amazing thing. Everybody sees it. They're amazed. They're, they glorify God. They're filled with a sense of fear. But then Jesus leaves, and he walks on a road beside the Sea of Galilee. It's interesting. When you read through this sort of time in the Lord's ministry in the other Gospels, the same question really is posed by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is this, whose sins does Jesus forgive? In other words, how far down will he go to rescue sinners? So following the healing of the, the paralyzed man, they all record the Savior's encounter with this tax collector, Matthew. And he is the lowest of the low. He is despised, he is hated, and really he is a, a demonstration of the miracle of grace to show that none are beyond his grace. Now, everybody who's converted is a, is a miracle of grace. But he had demonstrated is something so wonderful. The love of God in salvation is, is seen in Jesus coming to the lowest of the low. One who the religious leaders would have said, well, he's too bad for God. And they did say that. We'll see that in a minute. But look at verse 27. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. He was a cheat. He was a swindler. He was a thief of the worst kind. Levi also called Matthew. And after the Lord saves him, it's interesting that there's no record in the Gospels of Matthew actually saying anything. Even in his own gospel, he mentions himself only twice, that being his conversion and in a list of the disciples. And so humility marks his life after this encounter with the Lord Jesus, no doubt so grateful at the grace that he'd received. And from a tax collector being saved, he is then given the privilege of not only being a disciple of Jesus, but also writing one of the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ in the most magnificent and wonderful terms. But we need to understand just how deep this man was in his sin and in his situation. And we know that they were viewed tax collectors as the worst in society. They were traitors. We've seen it before in our time in the Gospel of Matthew. They were seen as those who had sold out to Rome. And it was just unthinkable that Messiah would ever save someone like that. Never mind making him one of his closest followers. But this whole thing shows us that none are beyond his grace when the Lord is pleased to work. And friends, that should give us real hope. Maybe there are those that are on our hearts and that we know that we think, well, could the Lord ever save them? Well, he can, if it pleases him. And we find here that with Matthew, Israel is under Roman control and they maintain that control not only by military presence and regional governors, but also heavy taxing. 
And so you had these local tax collectors, and they would bid to the authorities to get the rights to run the tax racket in the area, the business. And if you were a ruthless person, if you were unworried about cheating and stealing and exploiting and abusing the vulnerable, then you would get the business and you would get the opportunity not only to get the official tax, but to make lots of money for yourself. But you'd be hated. So you could get rich, but you'd be despised. It would also mean giving up any heritage you had, any Jewish heritage and acceptance in the community. And so you were seen as a servant of the enemy and one who was funding the enemy. Now, Matthew had chosen this life. He turned his back on his heritage, his reputation, his family, and he had gone in with the Romans. And as a collector, Rome would establish an amount to be paid each year, but anything above that went to the collector. So there would be many ways of exploiting the people, and often, like modern-day loan sharks, they would loan someone the money, but at an extortionate rate of interest, 50% or something like that. And when the people couldn't pay, well, then they'd send the heavies in and threaten and abuse. They had the power to assault people and search people. They could even harass people in the street and strip them of anything they had. They could charge tax on anything. Whatever way to get the money, they were able to do. And this was Matthew. Now also, the Jews believed only God was worthy of tribute, so to give a tax to Rome was appalling. And so tax collectors, they would be banned from synagogues. They would be pronounced ceremonially unclean. They would be regarded as worse than lepers. And they were also forbidden even to give testimony in a Jewish court because they were just known as liars. In fact, Jewish law stated you can lie and deceive a tax collector any time you want. So that was permissible because they were seen as so appalling. And for all the religious restrictions given by the rabbis, well, you could lie to those awful tax collectors. And according to the Talmud, there were two types of tax collector. There were fixed tax collectors. So they could collect taxes on land and property, etc. And that was someone like Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, who the Lord calls to himself and saves, he was one of those types of tax collectors. But then you'd have the small-time tax collectors. They were the real thieves. And they collected tax on whatever they wanted. So road tax, bridge tax. You'd have a tax on letters, market tax, you'd even have tax on how many axles you had on your cart that you pulled along or how many wheels you had. These were the real crooks. And some got so big that they had their own sort of people working at various tax stations. And the collectors at the stations, they were the the most hated of all. Why? Because they did the dirty work face to face. They would be the ones who would intimidate and threaten and abuse. The people hated them. They were the lowest of the low. And some Jewish writers at the time even said that these types of men were unforgivable. There was no hope for them. There was no redemption for them. They were written off. There was nothing for them. And that was the view of the day. And that was Matthew. And yet... The Lord Jesus comes for him. The Lord Jesus comes even into the place where he is operating in his filthy scheme. 
Perhaps he was the most hated man in Capernaum, but the Lord fixes his love and his eyes upon him. And notice that it tells us that he fixes his eyes on him. And also it tells us that in this way that he, he looks to, the, to, to Matthew, the Lord has this divine appointment to him. And he comes to him and he says to him two words, follow me. And it's just a, an incredible intervention. Matthew had been going about his business, about his usual day, and all of a sudden the Lord Jesus breaks into his life and says, follow me. And he must have thought, really? This tax collector? But as he calls Matthew, it's as though he's saying, you are exactly who I've come for. You are a sinner and you know it. And Jesus knew him, knew his heart, and Jesus comes to him and calls him in all his sin, but he doesn't leave him there. Notice that he doesn't say to Matthew in this call, he doesn't say, well, Matthew, I might consider you, you just need to clean your act up a little bit, get yourself ready, and then I could think about using you. No, Jesus knew he was a sinner. He knew he was hopeless and helpless, and Jesus says, you follow me. Now, Matthew would have known about Jesus. The word about him was everywhere. Capernaum was the Lord's base for his Galilean ministry. Jesus gained that reputation as a miracle worker, a, a teacher like no other. He was the one who declared that God would forgive the sins of the poor, the oppressed, the afflicted. And it seems that Matthew had been also convicted in his own heart of his wretchedness and his sin. He was poor in heart. And regardless of all the material wealth he had secured, the power that he had, he was in turmoil and burdened by his sin. And Jesus must have looked into his heart and not only did he see the sinfulness of Matthew, but saw the longing of his heart for deliverance. You know, if the Pharisees and scribes were shocked, imagine how Matthew felt because he knew how he was more than any religious leader. Friends, it's so important to understand that those called to follow Jesus know that they're sinners and sorrow over that sin. You know, for Matthew, he might not have known everything about the Lord Jesus. It was before he had gone to the cross. But we do know that he was convicted of sin. And we know that Jesus was the only way that he could be forgiven and accepted with God. The Lord Jesus was preaching that message of repentance and faith to cry out to God from the heart for forgiveness. And just like the publican in Luke 18 who cried out, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, That is the man who went home justified. And we've said it before that those in the Old Testament and before Calvary are still saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. They looked ahead to the coming of Christ, to the Messiah who would deliver and save them. And they were convicted of sin, saw their own hearts, knew their bankruptcy before God spiritually. They saw themselves as poor and prisoners and blind and oppressed in spiritual terms and they desperately wanted forgiveness and washing and cleansing, and so cry out to the Lord. And Jesus, who knows the hearts of all people, saw Matthew's heart, and he says, follow me. He calls this sinner to himself. And you say, well, how do you know his heart was like that? How do you know his heart was like that? Verse 28, 
So he left all, rose up and followed him. You know, unlike someone like the rich young ruler who was faced with the cost of following Jesus and when faced with that cost, turned away and said, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. Matthew leaves everything to go after Jesus. He's given that spiritual life and enabling to respond to the Savior, to trust Jesus fully, to cast himself on the Lord. And you need to understand, even though it's so understated, that the very act of leaving of rising up to follow Jesus is a, an a incredible picture of what was happening spiritually. He was leaving his old life behind to follow Jesus Christ. And as one says, it was a more dramatic move than the apostles who were fishermen. Because even though they left their nets, they could always go back to fishing. And in fact, they did following the death of Christ on the cross. You know, nobody could take that away from them or keep them off the lake. But once Matthew left his position as a tax collector, he could never go back. His career in that was over. But you know something? He would never want to go back. And so without delay, he rises up, he leaves everything to follow Jesus because he sees that Jesus is his only hope. And see that there's no delay. Verse 28, the call came and he followed. He'd never be the same. He'd been given a totally new direction and purpose. You know, when the Lord works in a person's life to save them, they're made new. They're given a, a new purpose, new desires, new direction. They're following the Lord. And notice that he didn't put it off. But he moved to trust immediately. He was under conviction. He longed to be delivered. He longed to be forgiven. And he responded to that call of the Savior. He'd been written off. The religious elite had said that he had no hope, no chance of salvation. But here the Savior calls him to forgiveness and acceptance. Jesus sought him out. And called him to himself and gave him forgiveness and salvation and righteousness. Friends, maybe some of you have heard this gospel many, many times. And yet you still delay in coming to the Lord Jesus. You still delay in repenting of your sin and trusting him. And maybe you still wrap with those questions. Well, you know, I'm too bad for God. Maybe I can't be forgiven. You see this example? And you see the fact that Jesus can save even someone like Matthew, the lowest of the low, and take him a traitor and a cheat and an outcast and bring him to being a follower, an apostle, an evangelist of Jesus Christ. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And Matthew lost his temporal career to gain an eternal destiny. He lost material possessions and yet was given a spiritual future. He lost his earthly security, but he gained a heavenly inheritance and hope. He understood why Jesus came, to save sinners, and he was one. And the work of the Spirit of God was going on in his heart and produced that kind of conviction that longs to be forgiven. And it shows itself in that decisive break with his sinful past and to walk in newness of life with Jesus. And then I want you to see in verse 29 that there is a real change in Matthew's life. Look what it says. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. 
So Matthew, obviously a man of means because of his previous business life, but now he uses his resources to give opportunity for others to hear the gospel. He wants others to know this Jesus who has saved him. And having been given that new life, having that joy of being forgiven, he wants others to know it too. And so he organizes this huge dinner in his home to bring people into contact with the truth. Now, who's on the list to come in? Who's on the invite list? Well, it's not the religious leaders. He invites those who are on his heart, those who are like him, those who are in desperate need. Matthew calls the others he invited, these sinners. It wasn't a gathering of the great and the good, but the lowest and the worst. And they probably all heard of Jesus, but they never thought that they would have access to such a man, one who speaks for God and who heals people. They probably thought that he'd never be interested in them. But then he saves Matthew. And there's this great celebration and suddenly thieves and thugs and hitmen and enforcers and drunks and prostitutes and all kinds of criminals and outcasts are personally dining with the Son of God. Verse 29, a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them literally reclined with them. It was, a, it was a long dinner. They taught, they ate. It's one of ten dinner scenes in the Gospel of Luke. And these wonderful conversations take place. Imagine what the conversation was like. The awful experiences that they must have been sharing. You know, maybe who they'd beaten up that day or who they'd extorted or etc. But that's the world. And it's the mission field. You know, one of the great challenges that we face as believers is this. Do we really engage with those in the world? You know, the longer we go on with the Lord, it is easy for us to get isolated from the people that we're supposed to reach. And we can become surrounded with Christians, and that's that's a good thing, and we love and must value and treasure the fellowship of believers. Of course we must. But also we need to have a heart for those who don't know the Lord and seek those opportunities. And often you find that when a person is first converted, you know, they have many friends who are unbelievers who they they want to tell about the Lord Jesus and they have the zeal to reach them. And so we have to battle to keep that and to look for opportunities. And so with Matthew... He wants others to know about the Lord Jesus and he gives this dinner and this gospel opportunity and Jesus is there and Jesus is with sinners. But then, verse 30, we've looked at one who thought he was too bad for God and yet the Lord saved him. But what about those who think that they are good and in fact maybe too good for God? Verse 30, scribes and Pharisees, well, they appear and they begin to complain. And you'll find that often with religious people too. They begin to complain, saying, why would he eat with them? Why is he interested in those tax collectors and sinners? Do you know, I often find it difficult when there are those believers who would say, well, you know, we we want this type of person to be saved or we want this particular group to be saved. Well, no, we should desire that the gospel goes to all including those that we might find uncomfortable. We should have a heart for those who are outside our comfort zone, as it were, and we should love them, seek to reach them with the gospel. But you see these religious people, well, why does he go to these? What's he doing with them? 
And so these experts in the law and fanatics in keeping the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, resent Jesus because he's begun to amass the hypocrisy and their emptiness. And they said, just build and build. Of course, they hated him. And they were outraged that Jesus would spend time with these people and they, they couldn't understand it because if he was with any group, it should be with them. But the Lord doesn't look at externals. He doesn't look at sort of empty religion and outward religion and appearance. He's concerned with the heart. And for all their externals, they didn't know God. They didn't know salvation. And their self-proclaimed righteousness, it means nothing when it's brought in the light of the truth, as declared by Jesus. And their objection is meant to be this slight, this rebuke against Jesus. It's not a genuine question. They're trying to make the point they're outraged that Jesus is with these outcasts. Now, also, they didn't really want him. You know, they didn't really want him. They just didn't want him to be with those others either. And so they imply that truly righteous people would never spend time with outcasts because they're ceremonial and clean. They're beyond redemption. And so they make this known, and they thought they were so close to God, and yet the reality is they were God's enemies. But anybody who questioned them, you know, they were blasphemers in their eyes, and so they were so good, so they thought. And Jesus knows this, and he hears this conversation taking place, and he answers them, and he does so with three responses, three parts, two we find here, and one is in Matthew. Firstly, verse 31, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, doctors don't heal, uh, deal with healthy people, but sick ones. The Pharisees have made their feelings clear about these sinners. The Pharisees themselves had written them off as sick. And so if the Pharisees and scribes could see how sick they were, see how sinful they were, then why couldn't they see how important it was that the physician go to them? And so the Lord uses the, the, the twisted understanding and brings it back against them. And he deals with the error and the coldness of their hearts and also exposes their hatred underlying and the Lord also is saying that he is God because Exodus 15, 26, I am the Lord who heals you. Jesus comes to the sick and the spiritually sick. He is the divine doctor, the divine physician. And so Jesus says, I am the savior. And then Matthew 9, 13, it's also interesting as he responds to these religious leaders, he says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so he quotes Hosea 6.6, 6, and it's saying, God's not interested in your externals. He wants hearts of mercy. And our Lord himself had taught, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And these scribes and Pharisees, they were without mercy. They had no heart of mercy. And so they invite judgment. And by using that phrase, go and learn, he was taking a very familiar uh, rabbinic phrase to rebuke their ignorance. And he was saying, are you so ignorant of what God actually desires that you do not know? And God hates ritual. He hates external morality separated from hearts that are humble and penitent and hunger for righteousness. And then he says... Verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. And there he affirms his own personal authority. And he, it is a cutting affirmation. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He lays bare the heart of the gospel. And they hated him for it. And friends, it's the same today. People reject the gospel. They hate Jesus. They hate what it says. And only grace, only grace can change a person to see the truth of it. God cannot and will not save anybody who does not see themselves in the light of God's holiness and perfection, who does not see themselves as a sinner. And we cannot trivialize sin. We cannot make it something superficial. We have to be brought to see ourselves as we are before a holy God as he deals with us. And that is the way that God works. He intervenes to show us ourselves and then to show us the Savior. And that's what we long for in people's lives. And that's why we, in our responsibility, have to preach the true understanding of what it is to be a sinner. The true condition of the human heart to understand that we are poor and that we are prisoners, that we are blind spiritually and oppressed and headed for a Christless, godless eternity in hell, having violated the law of God and the God of the law. And it is only when God intervenes, as we hear the gospel and hear with the inner man, as the work of the Spirit takes place to apply the truth and to open eyes and open ears and to give a new heart, that is when a person then says, yes, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. And friends, that's what we long for in this day and age. These scribes and Pharisees, they thought they were good enough. They thought they were religious enough for God, but they were so lost. And they had no concept of how sinful they were in the sight of a holy God. They did not see their need. They raged with anger and hate against the Savior. And it's tragic. It is so tragic. And, you know, it's still tragic today, even with the externals of even forms of Christianity. You have people, when you speak to them about the gospel, they hate it. And they still compare themselves to others and say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as this one or that one, and I'm, I'm doing okay, and I'm a moral person, and I'm trying to live my best, and all the rest. Friend, if that is you, you need to hear the rebuke of Jesus. For in your hardness, there's nothing for you here. If you see yourself as good enough for God, there is nothing for you here because Jesus did not come for the righteous. But he did come for sinners. And his call is heard even today for those who know that they're not right with God, for those who know their hearts, who know their sin. There is a way to be forgiven and to know the love of God and the joy of being right with God and peace with God. And it's through Jesus. And it's through his perfect life, through his death upon the cross, through his resurrection. And he is able to save you if you will call on his name. 
And he calls you to repent and to turn from your sin and to believe in him. And that's what we are as a church. We are just sinners saved by grace, trusting in Jesus, not righteous in our own eyes, but those who have been given the righteousness of Christ. Not the great and the good, but those who cling to the cross. Not those who think that we're good enough for God, but those who realize that we were broken and bankrupt before him. And yet in Christ... We have found the sufficient saviour. Not those who think that we can earn God's favour, but realise that we are right with God only because of grace. We have nothing, but Christ is everything. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure if the Lord can save you, maybe you think you're, you're beyond saving. You think on Matthew. The Lord can save those whom the world writes off. He is able and he is willing. And this morning he calls you. And so if you feel that you're a sinner and you know you need saving, that you come to him just as you are. And you cry out to him. And he will hear you and he will answer you. And I pray that some of you would hear his call and that you would leave everything and follow him and know what it is to be forgiven. And to know the one who gives us the satisfaction, the deepest longings of our soul. And who can forgive and give us hope and joy and peace both now and forever. Jesus, the only saviour of sinners. May you trust him and may you know him. Amen.